0: listening to the Getting Smart podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. This episode is part of a series that highlights indigenous leaders and education and unpacks their research, their leadership styles, their connection to place, and their identity. Together with my co-host, Dr. Jason Cummins, we hope to spotlight the ways that the education system can and must learn from these leaders and their critical work. Jason, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Hello, everybody. Uh, Jason Cummins here, and i um, glad to be back. On this episode, we have a great guest, um, Dr. Susan Faircloth. And um, before I ask Susan to introduce herself, I guess I'll say that um, when I was doing my lit review, I was doing my methodologies for my research. I had um, referenced a lot of her work along with others, and so when I did my first poster presentation, I was pretty surprised that who showed up to look at my poster, and I had some of her quotes on the work and. And then now here we are today. And so I want to thank you, Dr. Faircloth, for um, joining us. And I'll just say it was really, for me, it was really, I'll go back to that. I had read a lot of literature from Indigenous scholars, and it was so encouraging to know there was other Native Americans out there doing this work. And then to meet them in person, it was kind of like, wow, this is pretty cool. (laughs) So um, thanks for joining us. And could you introduce yourself and
2: So thank you, Jason. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk with you today. I'm Susan Faircloth. I'm a tribally enrolled member of the Kahari Tribe of North Carolina. We are a relatively small state-recognized tribe located on the southeastern part of North Carolina, about an hour inland. Um, I typically introduce myself um, by talking about who my relatives are, and then I can talk a little bit about my work. So my parents are Jean and Marie Faircloth. They still live in North Carolina. I am the sister of Lori and the auntie of Knight and Kanani. And I'm also the partner and wife of Lee. But my most important role is as the mother of a 13-year-old. Her name is Journey. And Jason, I know you've heard me talk about her. Um, Journey is particularly important in the work that I do Um, And as a part of the the story of why we're here in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is the traditional homelands of the Cheyenne, the Ute, and the Arapaho nations and peoples. And so if you don't mind, I'll tell that story just, just briefly to connect it to the work that I do. 13 years ago, my husband and I were living in Pennsylvania. I was a faculty member at Penn State University and the director of the American Indian Leadership Program. When we received um, a call, we had been trying to adopt um, for over a year. And that week in January of 2010, after three failed adoption um, opportunities, I decided that I was done. And so I told my husband, I'll just have to be a good auntie, a good wife. I'll have to find other ways to be able to fill this void that I have in my life. And so I cleaned furiously and got our house ready. And the next morning, about 10 o'clock, we were still in bed and we received a call from our lawyer who said, get a pen and a paper. There's a baby being born at this very moment. We were in Pennsylvania. She was in Oklahoma. The baby's being born at this very moment. We don't know the baby's gender. We don't know if the baby's healthy. All we know is that one of the baby's biological parents is an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe, Cheyenne and Arapaho. And because of the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, that process requires a native family to have preference um, in the adoption process. And because no one from her biological family or her tribe stepped forward, we were selected to be her parents. Um, And so we had to make a decision if we wanted to be the parents of this child. About six hours later, we boarded a plane, we had boarded our dogs, we boarded a plane, and uh, got on a flight to Oklahoma to meet our daughter. After going through freezing rain, fog, hail, snow, a whole variety of things, we finally got to meet her the next day. Um, And she was the most beautiful baby in the world, beautiful to us. And after much discussion, about a week later, we chose her name, Journey Celeste. Journey because of the long journey that we had to get her, and Celeste because my husband works for NASA, um, and she was this heavenly gift to us. And so I've spent the last 13 years transitioning from writing as an American Indian scholar from the perspective of an auntie and a former teacher and a researcher. And now much of my writing is about my role as a mother. Right? What does it mean as a Native scholar, an educator, um, to, to raise up this Native child and to do work that will help to ensure that she has a better educational experience than I had and that many of my peers had. Um, And so it's it's really important to make that connection. And then the last connection is, as I said earlier, we're located on the traditional homelands of the Cheyenne Ute um, and Arapaho nations and peoples. So five years ago, we relocated from North Carolina to Colorado State University located in Fort Collins, back to the traditional homelands of my daughter's people. And so when I think about my relationship to this land and this place, I think about it in terms of living and working in a contested space, having worked in a university that would not be here if it were not for the forceful removal, displacement um, and relocation, and in many cases, the death of my daughter's people. And so when I think about that contested relationship, it really helps me to remember that my work is about more than being a part of the academy. But it's about um, being in good relationship to native peoples and doing work um, that is honoring of those histories. Yeah,
1: that resonates with me because looking back early on, when um, first um, signed up for higher ed, if you could say that, people would say, "What's what's your um, career goals or how do you see your trajectory?" But that was really foreign to me. Like it wasn't about being in higher ed or it wasn't about me, I should say. It was about the community and, and then tying together your motivations there, um, can you give us some examples of that being a contested place?
2: My parents, neither one of them graduated from college. My mother went to work in a hog slaughtering factory. Uh, she worked there for 37 years. She thought she'd be there a year. Um, Because that's all that she ever thought that she could do. And it wasn't until she was in her 60s and retired that she became the director of a senior citizen center. So a senior citizen directing programs for senior citizens. And she began to write grants and learn how to use the computer and finally realized that she could do more than slaughter hogs. And when I think about that, you know, that that's a deep sting, right? When I think about the messages that are sent to, to people like us about who we are, what we can be and what we can do. My dad, on the other hand, he did go to a community college um, for a couple years to pursue an associate's degree in criminal justice. He um, volunteered for the Marines and went to Vietnam. He came back, did a variety of things, and then became the first American police officer in our community. And so, when I went to high school, I think that my high school thought that if it if it was successful in educating me, then I would graduate and I would probably go work in that same hog slaughtering factory that my mother went to work in. But I credit my mother most of all because both of my parents have been very supportive, but. For my mother, it was never a question of would I go to college. It was a question of where I would go to college. And she's probably still paying off college debt, you know, off of credit cards and, and whatever, all these many years later. But it was never a question of would I go, it was where I would go. Um, and she reminds me of that, of doing, you know, my work and helping to write my dissertation and all those other things. Um, with me. But as an American Indian student, I never had another American Indian teacher. I was a part of a title program and an American Indian education program. So I did get access to an American Indian person working in our schools, but never had a native teacher. And So when I graduated from high school and went on to college, um, I never thought about being a teacher. I swore, actually, I swore I would never be a teacher because why would I want to be a part of an educational system? that didn't see possibility in me, that thought that I just, the best that I deserved was to go and work in a a factory. And I didn't want to be a part of that, but I came home with a undergraduate degree in Latin American history. I wanted to be an FBI agent, CIA, some kind of international entry, but I didn't have a job. And my parents said, we love you dearly, but you need to get a job and you need to get one quickly. And so they encouraged me into education, um, I went to work in a college as a residence director. Then I went to work in a, um, an Indian education program in a large urban school district and realized I didn't do well with middle school students. And then I went to work in a community college with a TRIO Student Support Services Program and began to work with students with disabilities. And I realized that's where my passion was. And so I had an opportunity to go to Penn State as a part of the American Indian special ed teacher training program. Um, I was accepted into that program, but all the fellowship monies were awarded, and I was devastated because I couldn't afford to go. And about three weeks before the semester started, a professor at Penn State called and said, we've reworked our budget and we have the money. And I quit my job and I moved to Pennsylvania. I did that a second time. After I graduated with my master's degree, I called back to Penn State for a job reference and my mentor and advisor, Dr. John Tipiconic, um, answered the phone and he said, why don't you pursue your doctoral degree? And I said, I'm not ready and I don't have the money. And he said, just apply and it, it'll it'll happen. And that time, it was about two weeks before the semester started. I quit my job and I moved to Pennsylvania. And so my path in education was never a plan that I that I picked. I write about this that I think my tribal elders, my family, my community members knew I was destined to be an educator. But it was something that I resisted because I hadn't seen those those models. Um, and then, you know, I eventually became a professor because the third time I called back to Penn State for a job reference and John tipiconic said, why don't you apply for a faculty position? Um, and I did. And about a month later, I quit my job and I moved to Pennsylvania. Um, so when Penn State calls, I get a little scared there's about to be a life change. But I I quit my job and I went back as a faculty member working with him um, in the educational leadership and special ed programs and with the American Indian Leadership Program. And he was the person who said, Susan, you have something to say um, and you're smarter than you think you are. Um, And he's still that person 20 years later who calls me to ask if I'm up um, and ask me what I'm doing. And you know, all he ever asked of me was that I give back to other Native people and communities that same belief and support that he gave me. Um, but the last part of that, when I, when I talk about being in this contested space, and you know this, Jason, as being um, you know, a former faculty member, an American Indian faculty member, American Indians and Alaska Natives make up less than 1% of all college and university faculty across the nation. When I was at Penn State, I was the first American Indian woman in 150 plus years of Penn State existing to ever be tenured and promoted. And I say that not as a testament to me, but you know, what the heck? Like in 150 plus years, I'm the first American Indian woman that you can get to stay there and to be successfully promoted and tenured. So that says more about our institutions than it says about me. When I was at Colorado State University, I was the first American Indian um, woman to be a full professor, tenured full professor in the School of Education and the first American Indian woman to be an administrator in that in that unit. Um, And when I left this summer, I was the only American Indian woman in the entire college. And so, again, when I when I enter into that space, I recognize that um, I'm in a space that's built on stolen lands, regardless of where our institution is. And that the work that I'm called to do, yes, institutions pay me to do that work, but I do that work because of my responsibility to Native people. And so I never feel, when I'm in academic spaces, I never feel completely comfortable because I know that's not my space. But when I go home to my tribal community, I feel less and less comfortable there because of these choices I've had to make about being an academic So if that makes sense, so it's, it's, it's a contested space, not only in the academy, but it's, it's wherever I am because, um, these places feel a bit foreign, um, and, and uncomfortable and distanced, um, from who I am or who I want to be. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah. What do you see as the, the tie between, you know, indigenous identity and education, you know, and.
2: Well, I think we have to go back and think about what was the purpose of education in the United States. The purpose of education for American Indian and Alaska Native peoples was not necessarily to sustain our cultures, our languages, and our identities as Native people. If you think back to the um, the educational policy of the federal government in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was based off of an army um, officer, Richard Henry Pratt, and his motto was kill the Indian to save the man. And so he established Carlisle Indian Boarding, um, Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and helped to bring or, or was instrumental in bringing Native children and youth from around the nation to that school in a predominantly white area of central Pennsylvania. And what he what he promoted was punishing students if they spoke their indigenous languages, if they practiced their cultures, if they did anything that was related to their identity as indigenous peoples. He gave them English names, even though many of them didn't speak English. And that was, you know, more than 100 years ago. But if we think about um, our students' educational experiences today, and you think about the ways in which our parents and families interact with schools, much of it, I argue, is a remnant of that historic and historical trauma that was inflicted on Native people, that we have these memories that remind us that schools are not safe, warm, and welcoming places for us. So when I think about Indigenous language and culture, um, Jason, you know this, I have worked with the National Indian Education Study since its inception back in around 2005. And the purpose of that study is to look at Native children's academic performance in English and, and math, or reading and math, but it is also to look at the extent to which Native children and youth have access to Indigenous languages and cultures and histories within their schools. Because what we believe, what I believe, is that Native students do better academically when they have access to Indigenous languages, cultures, histories, and when they have access to Native teachers, um, educators, and school leaders. And yet we know that many of our students Are not in schools where they have access to any of that. So I believe that that, um, our languages and our cultures, and you know, there's over 200 different languages and over 600 different tribes, each with their own cultures. And I believe that it's critically important for our children and youth um, to have access to, to learn about, to be immersed in. Um, And unfortunately, many of our students don't have that access.
1: Yeah, I like to say that as educators, we're all great at, accessing a child's previous knowledge utilizing their culture utilizing their language for the purpose of learning but the challenge is it's usually for non-minoritized youth so we're using the predominant american culture and those students who fit within that category are doing great academically but everybody else um, that presents a barrier to a lot of our students and um you mentioned the study the is it nies study and And um, accompanying that, you published a work called setting the context. Can you tell us about that to set that data in context so it can be interpreted better?
2: Right. So the National Indian Education Study is funded by the Office of Indian Education within the U.S. Department of Education. There are several different partners in the design and implementation and analysis of data from that study. So it's in partnership with the Office of Indian Education, the National Center for Education Statistics, Educational Testing Service. There are also a number of other contractors. Um, And then we have some support from the Bureau of Indian Education, where about 8% of our students um, attend Bureau of Indian Education-funded and operated schools. Since 2005, or since the the implementation of the study, those of us who are on the technical review panel, which I chair, had been arguing that there are a number of variables, contextual variables that are not addressed within either the larger NAEP, National Assessment of Ed Progress, or the survey of language and culture. And we felt strongly as a review panel that those variables that are excluded are just as important as those variables that are included, because oftentimes what is not said, you know, when we survey or we interview people, tells us as much if not more about what's going on as what is said or what is sampled. So we had, we as a technical review panel had been advocating for the inclusion of contextual information within the report that accompanies the National Indian Education Study, but for a variety of reasons, we were not able um, to get that context included within the study. Um, a few years ago though, we were able to advocate Um, successfully for the development of a setting the context document there are actually two of those the most recent one is with I think the 2019 um, iteration of the National Indian Ed study and those um, those reports are available in both paper format and um, your audience members or listeners can certainly go online and click on a link that will take them to those documents. In the setting the context document, what we do, though, is to talk about the limitations of the National Indian Education Study. We point out that there's nothing in that study that allows us to speak to causality. So we can't say that the presence or the absence of native language or culture um, either improves or detracts from our students' academic performance. We believe strongly that it improves, but we can't make those causal, um, those causal claims There's also very little in the in the National Indian Ed study that we ask questions, for example, about how often students have access to particular types of curriculum, how often they have access to native speakers, how often they have access to native teachers. But there's nothing in that study that asked that speaks to the quality of any of that. So that's a major limitation. It doesn't speak to the quality of curriculum, the quality of teachers, the quality of their training, quality of professional development. So we, are, we address that within that context document. And then we also make two critically important arguments in that setting the context do- document. One is that American Indians and Alaska Natives are the only group within the United States that the federal government has a trust responsibility for, which means that the federal government has a responsibility to provide for the health, education, and welfare of Native peoples, specifically those who are members of federally recognized tribes, right? State tribes have a somewhat different relationship. The only other two groups that, that are similar to American Indians and Alaska Natives are students with disabilities, who the federal government has a requirement to provide education to under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and children of members of the Department of Defense. So if you're parents in the military, U.S. government has a responsibility. Other than that, we are the only group that the federal government has responsibility for. And we argue in that setting the context document that if you look at the educational performance of our students, it's an example of the federal government's failure to abide by and to honor the federal trust responsibility for Native students. And that's a, that's a moral and ethical and a legal failure. So we say that. We can say that in the Setting the Context document because it's published separately from the National Indian Education Study document. The federal government is not saying that it's a failure. Office of Indian Education is not saying that. National Center for Education Statistics. We, as members of the technical review panel, in our own role... As volunteers who volunteer to be on this study, we are saying that. The second argument that we make is that education um, is a trilateral responsibility. Dr. Martin Reinhart, who is a faculty member in Michigan um, and is also a tribally enrolled member, makes the argument around tribal Uh, trilateral responsibility. And he says that even though it's a federal responsibility to provide education for Native students, that does not absolve states from the responsibility to provide adequate education, nor does it absolve tribes. And so it's critically important that tribes, states, and federal governments work together um, in the education. We make some pretty heavy statements, but we also do it in a way that we recognize if it were not for funding from the Office of Indian Ed, the study would not be possible. So we, so we have to, you know, walk that fine dance of we recognize and we appreciate that these agencies are honoring that federal trust responsibility, and yet our students are still under um, underperforming, and our schools are not necessarily providing um, the culturally responsive and relative education that they should be. So if you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about that, particularly because I have a child who's, you know, one of one of, if not the only Native child in her entire school. Um, yesterday, she came home and she said, Mom, would you believe it that in one of our classes, some of the students were asking if we could reenact Thanksgiving? Um and she said, "My teacher said we are not dressing up and pretending to be you know, Indians or pilgrims and Indians." And I was like, "I just want to hug your teacher, right?" Because there are so many teachers who don't even have that level um, of understanding that that that's an inappropriate practice.
1: Yeah, that still happens a lot, doesn't it? The um, I have a good friend that we run with, and him and his family are the only Native people in the community, and their school's mascot is. Um, Pretty inappropriate, and their cheers and all of that stuff. And being Native American people, it's really—he tells me it's pretty hard to be around. But and you reminded me of another story, and just with the intersection of you know, um, special needs learning students and Native American students. And I had a nonverbal student, but he was ver—he was fluent within our plain sign language. So with a lot of the elders and those of us who have some knowledge of the plain sign language, we could communicate. But when he entered the public school system, the powers that be, whether they knew it or not, were still assimilative. And they they didn't want to honor that the student could communicate in this manner, and they wanted to, to replace his plain sign language with American Sign Language. And it was just like, this is still happening, even within our hand talk, even within our sign language. And um, I think we're not the only um, tribe that ex- has experienced that. I've heard scholars talk about their work with other tribes where they have their communication systems too,
2: right? And Justin, I, I would argue it's not it's not just that example. I think there are numerous other examples where schools fail to recognize that we have all we as Native people have always known how to educate our children. Like we are, we are a strong, resilient people. We have long histories and oral traditions. Um, and practices, and we know what is best for our children, but I think too often schools fail to recognize, you know, there, there are researchers who talk about funds of knowledge, and I think too often schools fails to rec- schools fail to recognize those funds of knowledge that our children, youth, and families bring to the educational arena, and if we would only tap into that um, I was at the National Indian ed uh, conference last week in Albuquerque, and we had a lot of discussions around um, the preparation of teachers and preparation of educators. And you know, we know that we've got indigenous languages that are dying off. and how do we how do we sustain those languages? We have people in our communities. my in my tribe, our language was stolen. it's lost. We don't have any um, any fluent or speakers at all within our community. But I think about those communities who do still have fluent speakers, but who may not have college degrees. And so one of the things we talked about at the National Indian Ed Conference was, how do we create pathways so that those people who have the language and culture and history um, and knowledge are able to teach our students without having to earn a four-year college degree? How How do we create those pathways and support our elders in being our students teachers, I think that's critically important, particularly as we face increasing teacher shortages, um, is how, how do we draw on those funds of knowledge?
1: Yeah, we're fortunate in the state of Montana, and that Montana has an, like, a pathway, they call it a class seven license. And so respecting the sovereignty of tribes, the state of Montana leaves it up to each individual tribe, how a person can become a class seven licensed culture and language teacher. So some tribes have a really rigorous process to become endorsed by the tribe. And then others um, don't, you know, the the tribal chairperson or council or whoever, whatever form of government they have, they sign off saying, yes, we endorse this person to be a language and culture teacher. And then the state honors that with the um, teaching license to go into the public schools. and. The ironic thing was the, the the more stricter the test, I think um, the languages aren't as, uh, as living. And whereas the communities were like, yeah, we know this is a speaker, somebody we trust with their kids and they sign off. And those, it's just, it's interesting. I'll say that, but.
2: That's something that, you know, we need to, we those of us who are scholars or academics need to be partnering with tribes and tribal co- communities to tell those stories about how those promising practices are working within our communities. Now, that raises questions about what knowledge knowledge should only reside within our communities and what knowledge should be accessible to those outside of our communities. But I think there's some critically important opportunities to tell those stories about the amazing work that's going on in our communities with very little resource, very little financial resources, I should say, um, that are helping to sustain languages or grow languages, and not just languages, but, uh, you know, other cultural practices. But it's that fine balance. You know, you asked me about being in this contested space. That's another example of contestation is, you know, who who has the right to access our, our cultural knowledge or knowledges? Who owns it? Um, who can share it? How do we tell those stories? Um, and I think it's something that we have to be increasingly mindful of, that we're not allowing outsiders to just come in and tell those stories because they may not tell those stories in the way that are accurate or that we want them to be told. And so we have to be intimately involved um, in that process.
1: Yeah, definitely. I agree. You know, and there's um, a lot of strong allies out there and then who speaks for the community concerning these issues and can one person or no, just all that relationality and context and just being in the community and grounded we know that and it's really an interesting space especially with the ideas of lateral oppression and you know the health of the community you know and what's a priority and but i'm thinking about those ideas of um leadership because that's i think has to do with a lot of this what do you feel um our native american studies or the native worldview has to offer the field of ed leadership you know, there's models of leadership that are um, proposed and um, taught within the spaces of um, principals and superintendents. I think what nuances do, does, this, does your scholarship and your colleagues scholarship have to add to that space?
2: Um, I've been an academic for the past 20 years and in August of this year I resigned my position as a faculty member um, and earlier in the year I stepped down from my leadership position. And part of the reason, I mean, it's a long, complicated story, but part of that reason was I didn't feel that I could lead authentically um, as an indigenous person. I felt like my moral, ethical um, principles were not in consort right, with, with the ways of being and doing of an academic institution. And at the end of the day, I have to come home. I started out this conversation by talking about my daughter, Journey and my parents and my relatives, at the end of the day, I have to come home and know that Susan has led in an ethical way, in a moral way, and in a way that is honoring of my Indigenous values and beliefs and traditions. I also recognize the privilege that I have in being able to make that decision, and not everyone has that privilege. But I think within that is a demonstration of what we have to offer. It is talking to indigenous leaders and scholars and practitioners about values of relationship, of reciprocity, of responsibility, right? Um, All of those principles. Am I in good relation with my community, with my elders, with my daughter, with myself, with my people? Am I doing work that is not just giving me something but it's giving back to those individuals with whom and for whom I work and lead, right? Am I doing that work in a responsible way? And I think we need to be writing and talking more about that. What does it mean to live and to lead with reciprocity, with responsibility, with respect? And and there's other R's. You know, I didn't come up with those R's, but there are other R's. And we need to be talking about that. Um, I would also argue though that academic institutions and other organizations, federal government organizations, organizations are not going to change if they don't have people like you and like me, Jason, in those institutions, demonstrating those indigenous um, values and making hard choices about how we're going to show up in those in those spaces. And there is a body of, le- of, of leadership literature um, that talks about that, but I think we need to be having those conversations more And as indigenous people, you know, if we're going to talk about respect and responsibility and reciprocity and relationships, we better be demonstrating those principles because people are watching us. My daughter's watching me. Um, And at the end of the day, that's, that's my greatest responsibility. And I'll close this by saying we did parent teacher conferences at my daughter's school last week, and she was there. And of all the things that her school said to us, They said journey is kind. Journey is kind and journey calls out injustice and inequity, but she does it in a calm and collected manner. And she does it in a way that people hear her. You could have told me she was the best mathematician. She was the best scientist, but anybody can teach math. Anybody can teach science. Not everybody can teach our children how to be good citizens and good relatives. And that at the end of the day is what I want for my daughter. But that means that our teachers and our leaders are going to have to live out those principles that they talk about and that we write about. That's that's much harder, right? That's much harder than just talking about it. If is really enacting those principles, and I'm not saying that I do that every day. I'm saying I have eyes on me that are watching to see am I living out those principles, um, and that that's that's a high mark, right, to live up to. But it calls for vulnerability and it calls for authenticity and for making those hard choices that sometimes mean we have to step out of those leadership roles or step out of whatever those roles are that we think we're called to be in, um, to, to really figure out how do we live out those values.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning.